0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories.
1: Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Rick Ferraro, and I'm a Hopkins Internal Medicine resident, where I will also soon be a cardiology fellow and a diehard cardio nerd. I'm very excited and proud to announce that I will be Chief for House Taussig in the upcoming Cardio Nerds Academy. I'm so excited and honored to work with my co-chiefs, our 13 bright and talented Cardio Nerds Academy fellows to learn, produce, disseminate, and study digital education for everyone. So stay tuned for a bright future in nerdy asynchronous medical education. We hope you enjoy this incredible episode, part two of our discussion with hypertension expert Dr. Luke Laffin, where we'll learn all about evaluation for secondary causes of hypertension approach to resistant hypertension, interventional antihypertensive procedures, and a note on cardiac rehabilitation. Make sure to check out part one in the CardioNerds feed if you have not already. Before we get started, I also wanted to take a minute to drop a quick plug and introduce you all to a really exciting project we've had in the works for some time, the CardioNerds Journal Club. This will be an opportunity to discuss a recent publication and learn via an interactive Twitter conversation with experts, learners, and sometimes co-authors more information is to come, but our first journal club will be on February 9th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where we will be discussing the STRENGTH trial. Can't wait to see you all there. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers.
2: Hey, Cardio Nerds. Just got back seeing four patients while you all talking about Mrs. Sato. Dan, Amit, you didn't tell me Cardiology Fellowship would be this busy. Glad to be here, though. <laughs> here it goes. Deanna Troy is a 28-year-old woman who presents for routine pap smear found to have stage 2 hypertension. After an evaluation, she's diagnosed with fibromuscular dysplasia affecting her renal arteries. Next is Jazia Dax, a 48-year-old woman with a history of systemic sclerosis who presents with acute severe hypertension with a blood pressure of 220 over 118 millimeters per mercury, associated with acute kidney injury and pulmonary edema. She has evidence of hemolysis, thermocytopenia, and schistocytes were seen on her blood smear. She's diagnosed with scleroderma renal crisis, and she was started on an ACE. Next is Jonathan Archer, a 42-year-old male with a recent onset of hypertension refractory to calcium channel blockers, thiazide, diuretics, ARBs, and a beta blocker. He's diagnosed with Kahn syndrome with bilateral idiopathic hyperaldosteronism. He was also started on spironolactone. And finally, I saw Wesley Crusher, a 21-year-old male with hypertension discovered during a sports physical. He has a brachial femoral pulse delay on exam and a marked blood pressure difference between his arms and his legs, which amplifies with treadmill testing. Aortic coarctation is confirmed on a CTA, and he's undergoing successful stenting.
3: Wow, Greg, you uh, were had quite the busy clinic while we were talking <laughs> about Ms. Sato. So with regards to this list, Dr. Laffin, would you review secondary hypertension? What are the causes of secondary hypertension? And when do you go on a hunt for them? What is a checklist for diagnostic testing in these
0: situations? Yeah, that's uh, that kept you busy there, Greg. I think that's a, a whole medical textbook worth of secondary causes of hypertension, and it's really important, okay, to at least think about these, not only for board exams, etc. But we're definitely going to see some of the more common causes frequently. There's all kinds of causes. I like to think about common causes versus really uncommon causes when I'm thinking about a secondary workup for hypertension, because you can always go and send a bunch of labs off and try and do that in these individuals, but really thinking about the high-yield ones is going to be most important. So when you think about the really common secondary causes of hypertension, at the top of your list has to be primary aldosteronism. Um, And I'll get back to that because I think it's just so important, um, and especially as cardiologists, we tend to overlook it. So I'll talk about that in a sec. We know that renal parenchymal disease is technically a secondary cause of hypertension and obviously cause renal disease, decreased GFR, etc. But we know that renal disease unto itself is a secondary cause of hypertension, technically. In the cardiology realm, obviously atherosclerotic, renal artery stenosis, renal vascular disease is really important. And if we take a step back, renal vascular disease in general, so secondary forms like that seen in fibromuscular dysplasia, Um, is going to be important in the right clinical scenario. And then other things we think about are obstructive sleep apnea and then interfering drugs or alcohol. That's really the major secondary causes that I think about screening for. And the major thing that you got to do is you got to take a history. That's going to be most important. Do a good physical exam. That's also going to be most important. And then your typical BMP is going to show you if you have any intrinsic renal disease, so decreased GFR, et cetera. The right clinical scenario, so a lot of these cardiology patients for bypass surgery or PAD, those are the ones that you're going to think more about atherosclerotic renal arterial disease. Younger patients could be screening for fibromuscular dysplasia. It's really easy to do a renal duplex, take a look and see. So when I think about who we have to screen for these causes, I think number one, you want to be liberal in when you send testing for renin and aldosterone. Okay. Now, important for cardiologists to know, it's not renin, it's renin. Otherwise, the nephrologists make fun of you if you say it. You've
3: been getting it, it wrong all this time. <laughs> I,
0: I was getting it wrong until like my second year of fellowship. And, and then a wise cardiologist said, laughing, wise up. You got to say it correctly. So it's <laughs> renin. And I think renin is like a uh, some enzyme or something in the cow's stomach. Yeah, it's, it's renin. So you screen for renin-aldosterone. And a lot of times we don't, in these individuals, I don't stop or change their medicines, okay? And the reason for that is that those people that are most going to benefit from treatment for primary aldosteronism or for excess aldosterone secretion are the ones where it's still going to be positive when we check for it, okay? You can always stop their medicines at an alpha blocker, at a calcium channel blocker, if you're really concerned in the future. But So I'm pretty liberal with screening in, in that sense. You also got to look at, when you're thinking about screening, is look for target organ damage, okay? If they have target organ damage out of proportion to what we would expect with their degree of blood pressure elevation, which is prominent in primary aldosteronism as well, that's when you want to do a little bit more digging as well. Now, the way I like to think about it is 90% of hypertension that we're going to see is a primary hypertension. Then we have this subset, about 10% is secondary hypertension. And, but amongst that 10%, the vast majority is going to be undiagnosed either primary aldosteronism or at least excess aldosterone secretion. We were all taught in med school that you need to use the aldosterone-renin ratio, and that'll give you the answer. We know that's really not the case. A really nice paper published pretty recently it was about 1,000 patients, four academic medical centers. They looked at a variety of patients, normotensive, stage one, stage two hypertension, resistant hypertension. They sodium loaded them, okay, to try and suppress aldosterone, which sodium will do. And then they measured arena and aldosterone. And what they saw, which is what makes sense, is it's a spectrum of disease. It's not like pregnancy, okay? It's not binary. You are or you aren't. There's a spectrum of disease. And once we reach a certain threshold, We call it primary aldosteronism, and we think those patients, we should be a little bit more aggressive about screening for potential interventions, surgical intervention, etc., but it's definitely a spectrum of disease. That's why spironolactone, a component of it, why spironolactone was so effective in the treatment of resistant hypertension when we talk about the Pathway 2 trial. So important to understand from that perspective when we're talking about primary aldosteronism. It's easy enough to screen for renal arterial disease as well. It's just an ultrasound. What you really want to be keeping an eye on, though, for secondary causes in general is really early hypertension. So if people develop it before the age of 30, you should definitely be looking at secondary causes. Obviously, if they have uh, treatment-resistant hypertension, we should be looking at that. One tip-off is thinking about diastolic hypertension in elderly patients. Actually, I just picked up a primary aldosterone on a patient just a couple weeks ago for this. She's like 70, 75 years old, and all of a sudden, her diastolic blood pressures are getting into the 95 to 100 millimeters of mercury range. That's not normal. We know that from in a Western diet, from about the age of 18 up until about 50, 55, systolic and diastolic blood pressure rise together. Then at that point, based on a variety of factors, but predominantly vascular stiffness of the large arterial structures in the body, we then see discordant changes in that. So systolic blood pressure takes a steep slope upward, diastolic blood pressure starts to go down. And that's why we see isolated systolic hypertension in a lot of these, these older individuals. So if you see that onset of diastolic hypertension in older adults, you think about secondary causes. And then, of course, unprovoked or excessive hypokalemia. Put them on 12 and a half of hydrochlorothiazide and their K goes down to 2.9. That's someone that, unless they're ingesting copious amounts of sodium, that's someone that is probably worthwhile screening for, for excess aldosterone syndromes. When we think about sleep apnea screening, I think it's very reasonable. Some studies pin, especially in resistant hypertension. The prevalence at about 80 to 90%. And then we can do the typical stop bang questionnaire or whatever's being used commonly now to really think about screening for those folks. I wouldn't go crazy on all the uncommon causes of secondary hypertension because it's fine to send off some of the blood tests, but more often than not, you're going to just get the patient a big bill and it's not going to be worthwhile. Everyone always thinks that they're going to diagnose and or paraganglioma and it never comes back like that. Now, it's not that we don't see it. We do. It's just that these patients presenting with spells of elevated blood pressure or blood pressure ability typically don't have it. So that's important. And it's fine to send off the testing, but really the results when you get them back, they're not, they're not subtle, okay, if you're actually going to diagnose it. And a lot of times we can see mildly increased metanephrine and norometanephrine, even in just hypertensive individuals. And then you got your laundry list of other things that people typically check for. Hypercortisolism, if the patient looks Cushingoid, that would be something to to look at. Check a TSH, it's reasonable, particularly in resistant hypertension, because hypo and hyperthyroid can lead to those changes. Greg, you had mentioned a case of aortic coarctation likely there. Just take some imaging. That would be a young patient with hypertension that we would look for. And then you know we think about congenital adrenal hyperplasia, primary hyperparathyroidism. Very rare are the mineralocorticoid excess syndromes other than primary aldosteronism. So those would present with typically low aldosterone and renin. And then acromegaly. Th- those are really the major categorizations of them. The one thing I want people to take away from this podcast is send more Aldosterone and renin levels, and say renin right too, but send more of them because you're going to pick more of it up when you actually look for it.
3: That's awesome, Dr. Laffin. I really, it's such a phenomenal review and chock full of pearls. I'm definitely taking away the pronunciation for renin as well. And I've had my fair share of launching into a thorough secondary hypertension workup only to fall short and really just diagnosing a patient with primary hypertension. This is important for our next patient. Tom Paris is a 58-year-old man with a long-standing history of hypertension and GERD. Blood pressure in clinic is 152 over 92, despite being on three agents. His clinic blood pressure tracks with his home blood pressure diary, and evaluations for secondary causes were unrevealing in the past. He's usually quite religious with his medications, but does sometimes have trouble remembering to take them all. So with this in mind, Dr. Laffin, how do you treat resistant hypertension? And what is your approach in these challenging scenarios?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. And this is a patient that I'm sure we all can relate to. There's a few issues going on. So really, the, the crux of it is, well, what is resistant hypertension? Because it's important to understand what that definition is. That's a patient that's taking a three or more blood pressure-lowering medicines. Typically, thiazide, a diuretic, appropriately dosed for kidney function, a blocker of the renin angiotensin system, and then a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker, and then they're not at their goal blood pressure. That's typically what we think about with the definition of resistant hypertension. Now, you can have controlled resistant hypertension, and so that means you're on those medicines plus another one, and your blood pressure is controlled. So that's the definition. Under the umbrella of resistant hypertension, I oftentimes point out, too, that there's a increasingly push over the patent last 10 years or so, a group down at UAB has really made more of a push to define a subset of those patients as refractory hypertension. So we don't want to be using resistant and refractory hypertension synonymously. And they define refractory hypertension as patients with uncontrolled blood pressure on five or more medicines, including sphernal lactone and including chlorothalidone. And those patients are a little bit different in that they tend to be in in some of the data. They tend to be driven more by excess sympathetic activation, whereas resistant hypertension we know is oftentimes driven by excess volume, sodium retention, et cetera. So important to to understand that first and foremost. In Mr. Paris here, when you are diagnosing hypertension, really important to think about excluding pseudo-resistant hypertension. So make sure he's taking his meds, okay? Make sure he does get out-of-office blood pressure monitoring and that we're not just catching him with some white coat hypertension. That's going to be really important. Make sure we've maximized his doses. Because if you're telling me he's on 12 and a half hydrochlorothiazide and 25 of losartan and two and a half of amlodipine, obviously we're not doing what we need to do from that perspective. And that's not going to be resistant hypertension. So thinking about those things is going to be really important. And then they have to be doing the lifestyle things as well. Okay. The guy eating six grams of salt, pizza, beer, burgers, et cetera. Yeah. We're not going to get him controlled. doesn't necessarily mean we need to formally classify them as resistant hypertension. We just need to get him on the better track. So how do, how do we treat these folks? So let's say he's on 25 of chlorothalidone, he's on 80 of telmisartan, and he's on 10-of-amlodipine. And his blood pressure is still elevated, and he says, Doc, I'm really good with taking my medications. We monitor his out-of-office blood pressure with 24-hour ABPM, and then he's followed up with some home blood pressure monitoring or self-blood pressure monitoring, and, and that's still elevated. Well, then we can classify him as resistant hypertension. And there's actually really good randomized control trial data for its treatment. And that's the use of spironolactone. And this comes from, I believe it's 2015 in the Lancet. It was the Pathway 2 trial. And what it was looking, it was comparing fourth-line therapy for uncontrolled hypertension. So it was either spironolactone that they they got, doxazosin, or placebo. And spironolactone was clearly better than all of those medications, when they when they saw it, and there's a really nice graph in there showing that it's really across the spectrum of the vast majority of uh, serum renin levels. Okay, so those patients that had lower renin tended to do a little bit better in terms of blood pressure lowering, but still, even at higher levels of renin, they had more impactful blood pressure lowering with spironolactone than bisoprolol or doxazosin. So. That's why it's in the AHA's scientific statement on resistant hypertension, and that's why it's really emphasized in there as well as your fourth line or go-to therapy. Now you have to be aware, the patient with hyperkalemia, chronic kidney disease, we got to be aware of that, but that's the nice thing about some of these potassium binders that we have available to us now, patiromer, et cetera, that those can be used in those scenarios where we run into hyperkalemia, but then that also becomes an educational thing with the patient as well saying, maybe we should just go put you on a low potassium diet. So you, you think about spironolactone as your first line therapy the concerns are obviously some of the antiandrogenic side effects associated with spironolactone there are other choices include a pleurinone. that tends to be uh, more selective and have clearly less side effects associated with it not as well studied for resistant hypertension but can definitely be one of the medications we go to the pathway 2 trial they did a, an interesting study after the fact was those patients that were taking spironolactone they they converted them over to amiloride and showed a similar decrease in blood pressure it was open label it was after the trial it completed, but they had them follow along for a number of weeks after on amiloride rather than spironolactone. And they saw a, a nice decrease in blood pressure as well. So that's another option that we have. Now, you know, as cardiologists, we're going to see the heart failure with reduced ejection fraction patients that they need to be on a beta blocker. And so there's compelling indications. Obviously, we're going to use that before we, we're going to maximize your beta blockade before we add on a fourth line therapy, before we add on calcium channel blockers too. So uh, keeping that in mind, atrial arrhythmias, ventricular arrhythmias, all of that, beta blockers are very important and should be used in those settings. But in just your primary hypertension or resistant hypertension patients without other compelling indications, we typically go thiazide type diuretic, dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker, and then a blocker of the renin-angiotensin system. So I typically go to angiotensin receptor blockers because they' much less side effects and uh, tend to be a little bit more effective at blood pressure lowering. So that's how I think about resistant hypertension and refractory hypertension. Your, you know, your question about patient adherence to medications is, is really interesting. There's a few ways that we, we can really enhance that that have been shown. One is fixed-dose combination therapy, and that's why it's really being pushed in the guidelines. If you can tell patients, just take that pill in the morning and it's got two medicines at moderate doses, you're going to get more effective blood pressure lowering than at one medicine at a very high dose, and you're going to get better compliance than the patient taking two medications. So fixed dose combination therapy can be really helpful. Having patients monitor the blood pressure at home is also a good way because they have the data right there. They know if their blood pressure is high, so they're going to be more amenable to taking medicines in that setting. One thing that's also important to think about when you're prescribing these medications is to think about how we dose them and when we dose them. Now, you want to try and dose them at times where you're going to minimize side effects more than anything else. If someone's having a lot of problem with calcium channel blocker edema, make sure they're on an ACE or an ARB to try and counteract that edema. But also, what I tend to do is I de- tend to dose it in the evening if that's the case, okay? Because they'll tend to have its most edema forming while they're sleeping at night. So we're not going to see that. Thinking about that, obviously not dosing diuretics at night, making sure patients are very clear. You want to take your diuretics in the morning. So things like that can be really helpful at promoting adherence to medication strategies. The nice thing is that probably in about, I'd say maybe three to five years, We may have even more antihypertensive therapies at our disposal that are not pills and that are injectable medications. Right now, there's over 100 different medications or combination therapies to treat hypertension. So it can be overwhelming to the clinician. And there's some that are under clinical trials for resistant hypertension as well. How much are they really going to make an impact above what we have right now. Probably not a whole lot. But what's really interesting, and I think the the next wave that we're going to see, is uh, small interfering RNAs, particularly for angiotensinogen. They've done some animal studies, and they're wrapping up their phase one study now, looking at it for blood pressure lowering it looks like it's pretty effective in terms of lowering blood pressure, particularly when combined with an angiotensin receptor blocker. And it would be similar to 2-inclicerin, to which probably by the end of the year, that'll be approved for, for LDL lowering, but ultimately similar technology, these uh, small interfering RNAs. So we're excited about that in the hypertension field, just waiting for more information from the phase one trials to really get a better sense of the safety of it and moving on to phase two and phase three.
3: That was such a great overview, Dr. Laffin. And I'd be curious to hear about your perspectives on interventional antihypertensive therapies.
0: Yeah. So those are still obviously everything is under investigation. So there's nothing currently FDA approved of any significant value for that. And there's been you know so many different manuscripts written since uh, the publication of Simplicity HTN3, which was really the pivotal trial that cardiologists we all thought oh yeah this is a slam dunk we're going to see this renal denervation worked we're going to be getting all those hypertension patients in here in and out of the cath lab in 15 minutes unfortunately the the results of that were such that we had to rethink it a little bit and simplicity htn3 for I think it was a, it was a well run trial but unfortunately i think the procedure that they did in the catheter that they used wasn't really comprehensive enough to really get the blood pressure lowering effect
3: just for the audience, uh, we're talking about renal denervation for a, in the Simplicity trial. Is that right?
0: Yes, that is correct. Yeah. So that's what we're talking about, renal denervation. And so the Simplicity HTN-3 was the first sham-controlled trial that looked at that and what didn't show any impact in terms of any significant blood pressure lowering compared to the sham procedure with the actual procedure. There was a lot of controversy behind it in that they didn't maybe... Perform enough ablations within the artery itself, um, and so the, what that led to was redesign of the catheters to a the quote unquote spiral catheter, which is more of a circumferential burn, and then more thorough procedures for burning the the main renal artery and then the branches. The most recent data from that comes from the Spiral Off trial, um, which came out earlier this year, and this was in patients with on not on any medications with stage one hypertension, and it showed some effective blood pressure lowering. There's no question. It wasn't nearly as profound as what you know, had been expected in some of the resistant hypertension, but I don't think people were really expecting it to. The question then becomes, is it something that's going to be used for uh, primary hypertension, not on any medications? I think it's too early to tell. I, I don't, I know, personally, I'd rather take a pill. Than get a procedure that's going to get me five millimeters of mercury in terms of blood pressure lowering. Because the one thing that I always worry about with renal denervation is when the resistant hypertension patients, I think, you know, it'll probably pan out if they can recruit enough patients to to actually get in the studies. But in, in patients not on any medicines, what happens if they get a GI bleed? What happen, happens if they get septic? So we have to think about those things. Are they going to have the same reserve and, and impact? Uh, some of the animal models would suggest yes. But if we're doing it in young people, over the the course of time, are we going to see that? Are they going to need repeat procedures? We don't know. The data would suggest no at this point. But if people are living 10, 20, 30, 40 years longer, will they potentially need more renal denervation procedures? So overall, the jury's still out on renal denervation. I think it's going to—it clearly shows efficacy in lowering blood pressure. But the question becomes, is the juice worth the squeeze? And in my opinion, not at this point based on the available data, but we'll see. Um, there's one other interventional therapy that's, uh, that's sort of interesting and still in clinical trials, and it fits in this class of endovascular baroreflex amplification. And it's the, the COM2 trial. Um, it's a takeoff from the original COM first in man trial, which was published in The Lancet a few years ago. And what it is, it's a device that sits within the carotid artery. Um, and it's it's like a scaffold, essentially, that is pliable and moves with, with systole and diastole and deforms the carotid baroreceptor and really tricks the brain into thinking that the blood pressure is higher than it actually is, and then technically should bring down blood pressure. Um, this is in its FDA pivotal clinical trial, uh, still recruiting for that. But that's another interventional therapy that's on the horizon and may. Uh, We have to be careful about it, it may prove to be effective in terms of blood pressure lowering long-term, particularly in resistant hypertension individuals. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting
3: to see over the next few years where we land in terms of this percutaneous options for
2: blood pressure control. Dr. Laffin, thank you so much for all the great information you provided to us today. I'm really excited and feel comfortable tackling patients who have uncontrolled hypertension and also being able to address patients who come in with newly diagnosed hypertension as well. I also think it'd be a great opportunity to briefly touch on your role as the director of the cardiac rehabilitation center here at the Cleveland Clinic. One of the star patients of this series and actually one of the most touching stories I've been able to hear on this podcast is about Mr. Cunak Amin, the head of the nuclear lab here at the Cleveland Clinic. He actually gave us his perspective as a heart patient in episode thirty-nine of the podcast. He told us that cardiac rehab following his STEMI hospitalization was one of the most helpful aspects of his care. Um, One of the most touching things he said was, I think cardiac rehab is one of the greatest things people can do. Dr. Laffin, would you like to say anything with regards to what goes on in cardiac rehab and how it helps our patients?
0: Yeah, that's so nice to hear that. Yeah, so I'm medical director of cardiac rehabilitation at the main campus of the Cleveland Clinic. And really, cardiac rehabilitation is a great resource um, for patients following any type of percutaneous intervention, MI, CABG, valve repair, valve replacement, the other indications for it are angina, as well as heart failure with reduced ejection fraction that's symptomatic with an EF of less than 35%. Cardiac rehabilitation oftentimes you know, Even a lot of doctors, even cardiologists think, oh, it's just getting on a treadmill. It's more than that. It's a supervised exercise and educational program um, that takes place over a three-month period, typically 36 sessions, okay? You do about three sessions a week for about 50 minutes to an hour, and you're monitored by a by wonderful team, typically of nurses, exercise physiologists, to really maximize your exercise tolerance and really try and improve that. And also to educate regarding common risk factors for uh, the progression of cardiovascular disease. Educate on hypertension, diet, blood glucose control. All of those things can be really important. And so that type of cardiac rehabilitation, which we technically classify as phase two cardiac rehabilitation, phase one is in the hospital. Phase two is that initial intensive program after one of these acute insults or events it's a really great opportunity for a lot of our patients who may have been pretty sedentary beforehand to get in a like-minded scenario. They they're monitored on telemetry while they're exercised, blood pressure is checked while they're exercising. They build almost a community sense. They're in it together. They want to get to those 36 sessions because we know that patients that complete all 36 sessions do better than those that complete less than that. So there's a real emphasis, a real group activity. The, the great part about it is that we have a lot of patients that continue on into phase three cardiac rehabilitation, which is, it's essentially exercise, okay? But they come back and they've been coming back for years and it may not be three times a week, but maybe they'll do a lot of exercise on their own and they'll come back and see our wonderful team here once a week, once every couple weeks and, and check in and do their exercise. And we have patients that have been doing it for more than a decade. And I'm sure many centers can say the same, that they have their patients that come back because it really creates a, a group atmosphere. It's not like one of these you know, loud gyms that people go to with the music blasting and a bunch of 25-year-olds lifting. It's just a nice atmosphere. You got people with similar issues from you, and you can learn from each other, and you can work together to really to really make a difference in terms of long-term cardiovascular risk reduction, which is really just so vitally important. So I'm so happy to hear that he had a good experience. And I'd encourage everyone, when you see that patient post-PCI or you see that patient who had that valve surgery, make another plug to get them into cardiac rehabilitation, because it definitely has significant cardiovascular benefits.
3: Thank you, Dr. Leffin. You know, I've come to personally really appreciate that and I'll say that growing up as a cardio nerd, my priorities had been that A1C level, that LDL level, their blood pressure level. And when we asked from a patient's perspective, who's been through it, what were the things that he found most valuable? And his answer wasn't that staged intervention with a drug-eluting stint. He said the three things that he found most helpful in his uh, life story as a patient were one, diabetes education, two, And no specific order. But two, the family support and how engaged his wife became in helping him promote a healthy lifestyle and a healthy diet. And three, the cardiac rehab that he was able to engage in after his hospitalization. And so it's just just so helpful to learn from our patients and realign what really everyone's priorities should be, a really holistic approach to care. So Dr. Laffin, as we finish this episode, we'd like to and with a, a favorite carddio nerds tradition by asking you, what makes your heart flutter about cardiovascular prevention?
0: I, I think it's the opportunity to really build meaningful long-term relationships with patients. And particularly when they're in a vulnerable state, we see a lot of patients here who are young when they've had their first cardiovascular event, and they, maybe they weren't doing the right lifestyle things, maybe they were, and they just have a, drew a poor genetic hand, but to really work them through it and say, you know what, we're going to focus on these lifestyle things. We're going to get you on the right medications and we're going to follow it through. And and so that really makes my heart flutter is developing those long-term relationships. It it gives me great pleasure to see someone back eight, 12 months later and say, I'm doing great, doc. I've lost 35 pounds and my wife lost it with me too. And we feel great. That's really, really special and important for me.
3: Incredible. Dr. Laffin, we can't thank you enough. There's hypertension management and then there's hypertension management. And I swear to God, when I began as a fellow, I thought that I understood hypertension management and clearly there's so much to learn and there's so much depth and there's so much uh, in the pipeline. And, you know, I'll add that Dan, unfortunately, had uh, he was called back into the cath lab, so he's not here, but I definitely took notes. To share with him. And I'm already really excited to come back and re-listen to this episode so I can uh, absorb all of your pearls. So I'd like to end with a thanks for Greg for joining us for this episode. Greg, thank you so much. And a very special thanks to you, Dark Laffin, for uh, hanging on with us until uh, past 7 p.m. on a working day. I know you've got an 18-month-old to get back to,
0: so really thank you for joining us and teaching us today. Thank you. I can use a break from her every once in a while, so it was good. But, uh... <laughs> But uh, no, it's uh, it's been great to listen to the podcast since you started. You guys started. It's great what you're doing, and I'm sure the the, the listeners really appreciate it. You guys might get big like Joe Rogan and sell your program, podcast for like 100 million. That's the next <laughs> step, right? No, you know our goals are
3: to always keep our content free for because we're, we really believe in what we're doing. But but we definitely appreciate the sentiment. And thanks again. Thank you, Dr. Laffin.
2: Thanks. Bye. you,
3: Hi, this is Amit Karat. I am president of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology and professor of medicine, director of Preventive Cardiology at UT Southwestern Medical Center. I want to first thank the Cardio Nerds podcast, what an amazing job these folks do, and really thankful that they've elected to do this prevention series. Prevention is so important and so fundamental to all that we do in cardiovascular medicine. And at the American Society for Preventive Cardiology, we're delighted to co-sponsor this series to really promote what they do to share with all of you about the wonderful world of prevention and all the great experts that they're gonna bring on these podcasts. We hope you get a lot out of this series. And if anybody wants to learn more about prevention, please reach out to myself or any one of these excellent speakers they have coming up. We're all pretty passionate about prevention and we certainly want to help others learn about it too.